supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway, and I apologize if I mispronounced anybody in there. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. I hope you're enjoying and learning from the podcast as much as I am. If you enjoy the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating, and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I've had to do a lot of video lectures this semester with COVID, and it's a really humbling experience to have to sit and listen to yourself instead of just forcing yourself on other people. Just to be clear, so you're teaching at where? So I'm teaching at Red Rocks Community College, and it's actually, I think it's considered to be the third largest woodworking program in the U.S. And because it's a community college, there is like an actual community. We have all sorts of students. We've had literal rocket scientists. We've had people who design robots that perform surgery. And then we also have like fresh high school graduates and a lot of military veterans. So while it's not a university position, I've, I really enjoy it because I kind of experienced so many perspectives from the students. Sure. Take a step back. I always start the podcast with something stupidly simple. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? <laughs> Laura Kishimoto. And one of the first things actually I wanted, I always asked just to get started, just to sort of learn a little bit about you is sort of your childhood, your background. How did you even come to being creative? Parents, teachers, like mm. what was the thing that led you down that path? Well, I mostly come from a family of scientists. Pretty much everybody in my family is in immunology in some form or another, but my parents were always really encouraging of having a creative habit and drawing and painting. And my dad in particular, when I went to apply for colleges, I knew I was good at drawing and painting, but I had never really felt particularly inspired or really like I had anything noteworthy to contribute. And so when I was applying to colleges, I was just applying to regular universities. And my dad kind of took me aside when I got into RISD and he was like, this is a once in a life opportunity. You could always come back and pursue another field later on. And I think he was kind of largely influenced by the fact that his brother had tried to pursue a fine arts career and ended up going back to school to become an architect instead. So I think he was also like sort of a repressed artist. My dad, he, he always wanted to be a photographer. Being a photographer sucks. I'm a photographer. <laughs> yeah. It's not very rewarding, I guess. <laughs> it is nowhere near as glamorous as the movies and books and, and other photographers <laughs> make it out to be. Like, not, not in my opinion, anyways. Maybe other mm -hmm. people think it's incredible, but I, I don't see the allure 
of it because it's it doesn't exist like the way the way we think about a photographer is how it was mm. like from the 1920s till even the 80s maybe early 90s that industry is going away very quickly unfortunately now and you went to RISD yes I did I love RISD great school one of my mentors actually went there as well so like I'm a huge fan one of the things I want to know about about you, you're probably one of the youngest people I've had as a guest at this point. Oh, so wow. I'm very interested about, well, but I'm very interested about that perspective because mm -hmm. I'm a professor. So I'm teaching people like you mm -hmm. and I'm interested is like, how is the educational system working for you these days? Like, did you feel when you went out, did you feel prepared when you left, you know, like both craftsmanship, but also sort of business-minded, like whatever you needed to do your career? I wouldn't say that I did feel prepared professionally or craft-wise, but RISD to me was a, it was much more about sort of like discovering, like I had never done any sort of three-dimensional art before. Before I went to RISD, I hadn't even held a hammer. And then when I went to RISD, I was using a hammer to to jack open the washing machine sensors to get free laundry. And my professors kind of introduced me to three-dimensional art and how to think spatially and how to consider an object from every conceivable viewpoint. And that was a real aha moment for me. I had always struggled before that with abstraction and not just sort of taking stuff that was right in front of me. And once I realized that I could set a specific intention for a piece, and then nobody actually had to know about that intention. It just had to like create like a harmonious feel to the object. And once I realized that everything wasn't reliant on that one viewpoint, I could just keep turning it and keep working each viewpoint of the object. That was like a huge revelation to me. So I don't think I walked away with professional skills from RISD, but I definitely feel that I walked away with a lot of spatial reasoning, a lot more sort of aesthetic identity, and just kind of joy out of creating a three-dimensional piece. Okay. You you seem to have a very uh, cohesive aesthetic. Like I really love some of your one your works. Which one's the one I really love? The the Yumi chair mm -hmm. and the vaulted stool. That mm -hmm. those general aesthetics of sort of exaggeration of things and the mm -hmm. the the choice of materials. I'm a huge material snob. Like I love oh, yeah. good materials. Like nobody. Like I'm sitting here trying to decorate my new office. And I'm trying to find a piece of leather and I'm trying to, I'm being such a snob about like which kind of leather to use. And like I used to do woodworking. So I do have a mm -hmm. little bit of working knowledge in wood. I'm such a snob. I love a beautiful, good, exotic wood far more mm -hmm. than I do like your average woods. So that's sort of one of my questions is like, why do you choose the materials you choose? Because like you could go with extremely exotic stuff and you know, of mm -hmm. course, which is very, very expensive. But you you seem to choose to work with more uh, pedestrian woods. I, I don't know what mm -hmm. kind of word to put to it, like sort of yeah, domestic hardwoods. Yeah. Common woods, mm -hmm. I guess is a good word for it. So like why do you choose to work with sort of common materials and then make exotic shapes from them? instead of maybe doing some, you know, something else with more exotic materials. 
Mm, I would say primarily because like form above all else is the most important thing to me. So if I use a more exotic wood or something with like a particularly burly pattern, I find that it pulls away from what I'm trying to achieve rather than adding to the actual piece. So I try to pick out woods that have sort of as minimally visual or I guess more of a subtle visual effect. Uh, I try to pick woods with really straight grain lines and kind of a subdued look to them to highlight the play of light on the surface of the piece, especially when I start bending or twisting it around. So you take light into consideration? Yeah. I sort of see it as like designing multiple simultaneous objects. So I want the piece to look just as strong and as powerful in full light as it does with like a raking low light. Interesting. Okay. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Sorry if this comes off as weird or awkward, but <laughs> <laughs> you're young. You're you're of a much younger generation mm-hmm. than I. I'm 47. I feel like I'm sort of on the, the ed- other end of my career than you are. But really, we're only 15, 15 20 yeah, it's years apart. Not, anyway. not so bad. <laughs> it feels bad. You feel horribly young to me. I feel horribly old talking to you, but it's okay. But my point is, like, when I was your age, I had very strong opinions of like my career goals, what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. where I wanted to go, all this kind of stuff. So I'm wondering for you now, you know, so like you mm-hmm. more or less, I call it still recently came out of school. So, like, mm-hmm. what are your career goals at your age and at your position? For a really long time, I, I did have the impression that merit would drive success, which I realized after a few years working outside of RISD that it does not. But I've been really lucky. Like, I seem to always happen to get a show or happen to get a client every single time my schedule is opening up. So, I'd say my long-term goals would be to have a line of work that is more accessible to the average person with the average paycheck that still has my aesthetic but requires less giving absolutely everything I have like emotionally and physically and putting that into an object. And then once I sort of sort out that line and have it a little bit more hands-off for me, I would like to continue to concentrate on museum quality pieces that are excessively dramatic and not very functional. <laughs> Good. Okay. Lovely. Well, I mean, the, but that's the sort of thing like, okay, I looked through your website, didn't really see any prices. So like, mm. do you sell your pieces? Yeah. I wouldn't say I, I sell them with a great regularity, but I get by on commissions and speculation work. I had both Yumi chairs or two out of three Yumi chairs bought by museums this past year. So to me, that's sort of like they couldn't go to a better home because there people will be able to walk around and view it from 360 degrees. No one will sit in it. <laughs> well, that's what I was about to ask. Is like, I mean, I do. I appreciate the the desire to be in a museum, but mm-hmm. once it's in a museum, especially considering you're designing sort of functional things, mm-hmm. 
it will never serve its function again. It's it becomes an <laughs> object that will never be interacted with again. Are you okay with that? Yeah. So function has always been sort of my weakest point. The first woodworking project I ever made was a table. And if you place an object on the surface of the table, it would roll into the center of the table and fall through a hole in the center of the table back onto the ground. So I've never made function a priority. I think in part because I desire like a really engaging form so much, I will always compromise function. And to me, building a piece that looks like a chair is much more about sort of using the universal archetype or motif as a chair that everybody could recognize and building off of that sort of abstracting what a chair is. But like when I, when I looked at the vaulted stool, I was, mm -hmm. of course, this is me projecting. <laughs> I saw like a Gothic cathedral kind of oh, yeah. patterning to it, mm -hmm. but that's because my father's a priest. So like, you know, I see, I see religion in almost everything. That's <laughs> how, how we are, you know, kind of thing. So, I mean, like, so you talk about function or form over function, mm -hmm. but so where do you find the inspirations for these? For the vaulted stool in particular, it was Gothic cathedrals. I was Great. reading. I saw the right thing. <laughs> yeah, I was reading Ken Foley's Pillars of the Earth at the time, and I was getting like really just ex excessively excited about Gothic architecture and barrel vaulting and all that. And it was during my upholstery class at RISD. So I wanted to sort of highlight the fact that upholstery can be a hyperbolic geometry, that the the strength of upholstery is that it doesn't need to be a two-dimensional curve. I take a lot of inspiration from origami and paper folding. So I wanted to do something that like played with the surface area of the piece and hyperbolic geometry is where basically at the, the origin point, zero comma zero, the surface area is zero. And then the surface area expands exponentially in every direction as it comes out. So if you think about like lettuce leaves and stuff like that, the edges of the lettuce leaves will start to curl in on themselves because there's so much more surface area towards the outside of the leaf. So kind of combining those two, the love of hyperbolic geometry and then the excitement about Gothic architecture. I wanted to make a bent lamination frame with Danish cording weaving in a pattern through the frame and then upholster on top of that. That's very intricate. <laughs> that is functional though. You can sit on that stool. <laughs> Wait, so you're saying I couldn't sit on a chair like the Yumi chair, like I can't sit in it? Because none of the photos you represent have people in them, so I have no <laughs> idea of the functionality of them. I actually did do a photo shoot of the Yumi chair with someone sitting in it just to prove to everybody that you can sit in it, but you would never sit in it for comfort. You would sit in it as like a throne to like lord power over everyone else. <laughs> as one does. Yeah, we all do that sometimes. Now, yeah. I also I noticed also in your CV that you were you won a lot of awards uh, and had a lot of sort of interest in your work in 2013, 2014, sort of like right around when you were coming out of school. 
And I'm wondering, did, was there some, any sort of a, like, like any amount of pressure sort of put on you? Cause like you're winning awards and you're winning awards to continue to sort of really push forward and innovate to make sure you sort of keep winning these, these opportunities. I guess there was pressure to stay in the fine arts and not try to pursue a field in more like industrial design and that sort of thing. But I also felt like I had sort of stumbled onto one of my greatest strengths. And I really wanted to play up that strength, then move to a company where I would sort of constantly be mediocre at what I did. I'm all for it. (laughs) Yeah, I did have at the time, I was a little bit overwhelmed. Like for a while, I tried to join a gallery and I was just totally unprepared for how cutthroat galleries can be. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That that entire aspect of the industry is very difficult. To, I mean, you have to be a certain kind of a creative person to mm-hmm. desire and be able to successfully participate in the gallery scene. I don't know, industry, I'm not sure. Yeah. The gallery, I was never really signed to an exclusive contract with the gallery, but the gallery owner just told me point blank that I shouldn't expect to ever make a living off the fine arts and that I should just marry rich so I'd be supported by a wealthy husband. (laughs) Wait, hold up. That's a joke that we used to say (laughs) back in the 80s and 90s. Like, I mean, people are still saying that to you these days? I mean, he's the only one who's explicitly said it to me, but he was he was like a fairly unpleasant person. He would he was really, really paranoid about me going behind his back and selling directly to people. So he would always kind of like tell me about people who had screwed him over in the past and like how the I I couldn't do that. <laughs> Sadly, that's very common in the industry as well. Mm. So yeah. yeah, his paranoia is probably duly noted, uh, mm. you know, but so, okay. So you have worked with galleries though, or was it yes. just the one gallery? Just the one gallery. To me, it was a fairly off-putting experience because when I did sell a chair through them, he gave the client a discount that I hadn't discussed with him. And then I got half of the discounted price and it wasn't enough to even cover the cost of building the chair. I think I ended up making like less than $5 an hour off of that chair. Yeah. Yeah. The discounting that galleries do is something that really should be addressed that people don't talk about it enough. Like they don't, Mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of artists don't even know that galleries do that. Like I worked at a gallery in San Francisco decades ago and the owner was incredibly supportive of the artists. And anytime Mm. she offered a discount, that discount came out of her side, never out of the artist's side. That's incredible. It was incredible. And of course she ended up closing her doors because, well, she Mm. was such a giving person and she couldn't keep that business model going. But, you know, it's that kind of a thing where like, if a gallery chooses to give a discount, well, the gallery chose to give a discount. It should come out of their part, not out of the artists. Like mm-hmm. it's hard enough to be able to 
for, as, a, as a practicing artist, like it's hard enough to be able to come up with a good price that you, like mm-hmm. my dad was on an episode previous and he's, his professor used to say, you set a price that will make it so you're not sad you've lost this piece. <laughs> so like if you set that price at a point where you're not sad to have lost, never seen this piece ever again because it's now mm-hmm. gone from you. And then you have to double that for a gallery. Mm, yeah. The price is generally outside of the realm of the sort of what should be the price in the market for your stuff. Because realistically, the first price, the pre-gallery 50% mm-hmm. is probably closer to what should be the retail price. Mm-hmm. And that makes it really difficult for artists oftentimes to work with galleries unless they can sell consistently so like you know mm-hmm. they can sell volume and so therefore lower prices yeah and i've always that's struggled my, that's with my volume. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm quite slow at building stuff so volume is not a strong suit of mine okay how long does it take you to make a, a piece well the yumi chair is my most labor intensive and that would be working probably a 40 or 50 hour work week for three months straight on the Yumi chair. Like constantly, like all day, every day, or are we talking like with dry down times and stuff like that also? It does include glue times because they're over, uh, I counted it once. I want to say that there's like 77 individual glue ups in that piece. So that's like 77 pieces that have to get milled after they get glued up and get edge detailing and all that. So it's it's a constant sort of cycle of waiting for glue to dry and then like quickly trying to plane and 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 mill the pieces and clamp them onto the jig so that I could do the next set of glue ups. So I mean under that thing you would only be able to make four pieces a year? I'd say that's pretty typical for me, yeah. Wow, okay. Oh, okay, well, I want to take that back a step cuz like in my mind what I start thinking what you're saying right now is I start thinking mm-hmm. you're more of a sculptor who mm-hmm. happens to work with sort of functional scu- forms mm-hmm. because you're also saying they're not functional. So like you really, you're a sculptor. <laughs> like, so I guess the question, my point is, is like, how would you define yourself? Like, you know, there's a difference between how the public defines somebody versus how they mm-hmm. define themselves. So like, I hear you as a sculptor who happens to work with, traditional functional materials and shapes but mm. you're they're not traditionally functional <laughs> i guess i would typically identify as a designer i usually say sculptural furniture and functional object designer but i'm also very much a woodworker i think that wood is an incredibly restrictive medium because it keeps trying to remember that it was a tree so there's a lot of qualities about wood that you have to work around and that you have to compensate for. So for me, that technical aspect has always been really important as well, which is why I, I wouldn't go all the way to sculpture. But <laughs> It's perfectly fine. It's how you define yourself. I don't believe you ever answered me prices. Oh, prices. What was the question again? How much are your pieces? Oh, <laughs> well, the Yumi chair is the most expensive one because it's the most labor intensive. So I've been selling that at, at 12500 And then typically I try to price all of my pieces 
by the number of hours that went into them and the materials that went into them. So it's usually lower end of the spectrum would be about $1,200 for the vaulted stool. Okay. I won't ask to trade artworks with you then. You're, far, <laughs> you're out in my price range. It's fine. Because like I would love to have a piece of yours in my home, but that's too much. <laughs> okay. You mentioned the term, something noteworthy to contribute mm-hmm. prior to going to RISD. Now that you've gotten out of school, do you feel like you have something noteworthy to contribute? I do feel that if I had gone into any other field, particularly if I had gone into the sciences or I was also considering ASL interpretation, I would have always been in the middle of the crowd. So by going into woodworking and by going into the fine arts, I felt that I had found sort of a unique way to contribute and make a lasting impact with sculptural form, I suppose. I'd, I'd found a bit of a niche. You you seem to phrase that like a question. So I'm like, all right. <laughs> to me, one of the most important comments I've ever gotten was from a friend who had only ever known me personally. He had never seen my work. And the first time he saw my work, because I think he had always assumed I was a pretty quiet, soft-spoken, not very like assertive person. And when he saw my work, he was like, oh, this is your ego. Like, this is where you speak the loudest. This is where you're the most unapologetic. Are you a soft-spoken person? (laughs) Technically, my voice is soft, which sort of automatically filters in people's brains. So I can say something that's quite harsh or mean and people will automatically like filter it and they won't actually remember me saying something mean to them because they'll just remember the tone of the voice. Yeah. See, my tone is the opposite. When I say something <laughs> nice, people think I'm saying mean things. It's, it's very difficult, I know. All right. So you're out of school. You've been out for, mm-hmm. I think, what, five, six years now, something like that? Uh, 2013. So a little bit more seven, like seven. seven eight, yeah. Seven, eight, yeah. eight years. Mm-hmm. Okay. How is, I mean, basically I'm not in America. I'm not at your Mm -hmm. level of career. So like, how is the industry treating you these days? Are there a lot of opportunities? Has, has the, the pandemic affected your opportunities? I haven't done really all that much work at all during the pandemic, partially because since I'm teaching part-time, we had to rapidly figure out how to teach woodworking partially online. So that just sort of ate up a lot of my mental bandwidth, was reorganizing those classes and making them accessible to everyone. I've been working mostly on spec work in terms of personal work this year and haven't really been prioritizing getting any particular projects finished. Do you apply for grants or residencies or any of these kinds of things? I do really enjoy residencies because I I do feel somewhat isolated in Denver. I don't think that there's a huge fine arts community, or at least I haven't found it yet in Denver. And I miss being in school and having that really insular environment where you're constantly surrounded by really ambitious and driven people. So I love residencies for that reason and that you can 
you're around people that inspire you and that you could bounce ideas off of. I haven't applied for one recently, though, because I just got a home and I've been building a shop in the home. Sure. Makes sense. But yeah, that, I mean, that, 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 gosh, I mean, being in school is such a magical time. Like the yeah. <laughs> resources that are available, the inspirations, the people. Uh, I mean, and, and the thing is, is everybody takes it for granted. They're always mm -hmm. like, oh, this is what art, being an artist is like. It's like, and it's never like that again. Like yeah. that is the, the <laughs> best time of your life. It really is. Yeah. I always told my students, like, you have to take the opportunity to fail spectacularly while you're here because there's nowhere else will will be easier to fall like straight on your face. And there's nowhere else where you'll be able to like learn as much and recover from complete failures. Oh my God. If I went out now and did an exhibition that was a complete failure, my <laughs> reputation would be ruined. Like it would, you know, it would take me a decade to get past that bad reputation. But like you fuck mm -hmm. something up in school, big deal. Go for mm -hmm. the next assignment, make something better. But like, man, school was those magic times. I loved school so much. Probably that's why I'm still a teacher because I just love being around school so much. Yeah, honestly, it it informs a lot of the reasons why I'm working at Red Rocks. Is it just makes me so happy to see people encounter woodworking for the first time or encounter bent lamination for the first time and see what their brains think of because they don't know all the rules yet. Absolutely. Oh, I love woodworking. I love the smell of woodworking. Mm -hmm. I do. I mean, I'm a photographer. I miss the smell of a wet dark room. I miss the smell mm -hmm. of a clay studio. I mean, all these different places, they have these very distinct smells that like, when you don't have the opportunity to go in them, you're like, ah, oh, fond memory. <laughs> What residencies have you done? Uh, so far, I've only done two. I did the residency at Anderson Ranch in Aspen, Colorado. And then I did a newer sort of upcoming residency at, at Buffalo Creek. It's right near Tahoe, California, and Nevada, right on the border. Well, and what were your experiences? Like, I'm a huge fan of the whole residency oeuvre like i mean so you know were they were they sort of solo where you sort of went in and did your own project were they communal where it was all about engaging with other people like what were the the experiences of your residencies like well both times i met really inspirational people that i still keep in touch with and that i was able to especially anderson ranch i feel like they ex encourage you to explore new mediums and like take advantage of the experts that they have there on site. So I did a little bit of experimentation with paper clay while I was there. At the time, I had no idea the properties of paper clay or like making it self-glazing or supporting it while it's firing in the kiln. And then at the Buffalo Creek Residency, it was a little bit more independent because the wood shop was actually an entire like mountain over from where all the other artists were and there was no air conditioning so I would work I would start work at like 6 p.m and I would work until probably like 5 a.m or so when it was the coolest and then I'd come back to the resident the house and usually meet up with the ceramicist because by then he was getting up to start his work day who did you work with at, at uh, Anderson Ranch 
I'd say the closest person or the person I was closest with was Colin Weinreck. I know probably mispronouncing his name, but he had actually graduated RISD and he was making these geometric forms and then using slip casting to create sort of attaching nodes for those geometric forms and build out these giant kind of sculptural chandelier pieces. And then Fabio Serrano was the woodworking department head at the time, and Mark Tan was the intern, and he later became the new department head. Giselle Hicks was the ceramics department head, and she helped me a lot with the paper clay. I'm just asking because I've had some other guests from the Anderson Ranch huh. actually on the podcast. So, yeah, yeah, I think I listened to that one. <laughs> Which leads me back to a, a question that you, or a comment that you made about like that, that you thought the art world was about merit, but you've learned differently. Mm-hmm. What have you learned that is, uh, is not merit-based? I guess I've learned that so much of it is about building your brand identity and creating a consistent image of yourself. And then also so much of it is just... I guess what I would call CEO time, like figuring out your taxes, like recording your receipts, building your website, making invoice forms, like all that. And then all of it is done on the fly with no like formal education behind it. So you you sort of constantly have imposter syndrome. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't feel any imposter syndrome. <laughs> however, I also know. Um, however, I also know that I know nothing about business. I am a horrible business person, and I will admit it straight up front. Yeah, I uh, don't feel like an imposter because <laughs> you weren't trained in business. You don't know how to do run a business. You were trained in being an artist. Yeah, I'm learning through trial and error. I'll do something repeatedly wrong until it goes right. What's an example of something that you feel like you did wrong? I guess the biggest example I can think of was equating self-sufficiency with being like a real artist. So thinking that if I made every single component of a piece like that made the piece more of an art object. And so realizing that I should really outsource as much as possible to experts who know how to do it better and faster and cheaper and trying to build a network of people that I really trust and respect has probably been like the greatest learning curve for me. Yeah. I just figured that out two years ago. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things like there's this romantic idea of artists Mm. being in their studio, hand producing every single thing. Mm. And, and I've realized in the past, just in the past two years, probably just since I started doing this podcast that Mm -hmm. it's the smartest way, which I think is the difference, like the smartest Mm -hmm. way to do this kind of stuff is to have a group of people that you trust and people you can pass Mm -hmm. certain things off to who are experts in that part of the field, whatever. But basically Mm -hmm. the, the idea that being an artist as the romantic idea of that is that we're these individual loners off in our studio, smoking Mm -hmm. cigarettes until, you know, the day is long. And, 
but it, realistically, it's more about actually building community and finding mm -hmm. people and building a network. And that's mo almost more important than mm -hmm. the hand production and all this kind of stuff these days. Yeah, I, I watched this TED Talk that was really influential to me, which was called When Ideas Have Sex by Matt Ridley. Have you seen that? I have not, but I will now. <laughs> so it's all about how like sort of humanity's greatest strength is our communal mind and the exchange of ideas and building on top of other ideas and that I believe his quote was self-sufficiency is poverty. So if you know how to do everything by yourself, it consumes all of your time and energy. And ultimately you're never going to be as good at it as people who specialize in things. And he gave the example of like a computer mouse. And he said, nobody in the entire world knows how to build a computer mouse because you don't know how to mine for petroleum and then, rare metals and do the circuitry and the software engineering and all that. So I kind of came away with that thinking that outsourcing is amazing. And also that there should be no stigma to copying because copying is how people exchange ideas without having to like physically be present with each other. If you copy someone's work who lived hundreds of years ago, you're kind of tapping into their mindset and figuring out what they were thinking at the time. And then you build off of it and you create your own work based off that mindset. Be careful with the word copy. <laughs> yeah. There, there are laws about that. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, in, in tribute to, you know, honorary, <laughs> I don't know what the words are these mm -hmm. days, like, you know, in 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 honor of this person kind of thing more than copying copying i would bad. say copying more as a as an exercise not as a way to make a profit off of something but if you say see a particular technique that you're inspired by and you try to recreate that technique just by being a unique person you're inevitably going to come up with your own take on it Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. I've done the same thing. I did a mm -hmm. two two series of works when I was in my bachelor's program that I thought they were so innovative, and <laughs> special. Until my professor was like, "Oh, that's just like Robert Heineken. He did the <laughs> same thing thirty years ago." Mm -hmm. And then another time, I, I did a whole series of work, and somebody's like, "You know, that looks just like Idris Khan." And I'm like, oh, damn, <laughs> it "Does look just like fucking Idris Khan?" Like, it's amazing how how influenced we are without even knowing we're being influenced. Mm. Like it just sort of seeps into our brain and then we're just like, fuck, we, I'm, I'm, I'm mimicking somebody's mm. previous work, you know, hopefully building on it, making it somehow unique and special to me. But yeah, sometimes we fail at that miserably as well. But I think we're kind of, we're all working with the same biology. So if we try to make something completely original, inevitably we're going to make something that looks exactly like what someone else made previously somebody else who was trying to be incredibly original uh -huh. as well <laughs> yeah well I mean, there's also the issue of that which is like I, it's funny i was just talking with somebody else about this that we're being we're constantly being encouraged to break the molds be original mm -hmm. be unique mm -hmm. however they also want you to work within a certain structure which is the mm -hmm. art market or the arts industry so you can push the limits so far but you can't push it 
too far or else you're outside of the the industry so mm-hmm. like there's this fine line of where you you how far you can push and how and how far they don't want you to push simultaneously mm-hmm. yeah i think because most of my work involves freeform bent lamination i think one of the reasons why it comes off as more unique looking is that it's just so labor intensive nobody wants to do it cuz you can't make money off of it <laughs> Well, okay, let's get back to the nuts and bolts of it. How do you make money if you're not making money from selling your art? So with the art that I can make, I can usually break even for my costs as as an artist, so covering all of my professional costs. And then with teaching, I can usually break even with my personal expenses. So I don't make a lot of money. Yeah, no. Breaking <laughs> even is a good start, but that's not going to help you out in the long term. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Something you talked about earlier, which I didn't follow up on. You said you sold a piece, or well, you said you sold two pieces to museums in the last year. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated. How does that happen? So, like, I'm sure you didn't like write a letter to a museum <laughs> saying, "Hi, I've got a, I've got a piece available. Are you interested in buying it?" You know, kind of. So, like, how did that come about? Yeah, like both of them were kind of interesting because they both were a stack of coincidences. The chair that I sold directly was came from meeting Darren Alfred, who's one of the directors at the Denver Art Museum, meeting him at a show in Denver where I was auctioning off a sculpture and just happened to meet with him and talk with him. And he was like, someday, like, we're going to be able to afford one of your chairs. And then like five years later, he contacted me and he's like, okay, we can afford your chair now because they, they got a donation. And then the other chair had originally been sold to a private collector. And then this year they sold or donated the chair to the Mint Museum in North Carolina. Yeah, those are lucky. Yeah, they're very lucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for for a museum director to know you well enough to say someday we'll buy your thing. It's pretty good. Yeah, he was he was a, a really great guy. Now I'm like struggling to remember the name of that show, but like every year the Denver Art Museum has a show where artists donate work and every year it's based off of a theme. So I believe the theme when I was participating was cut and I made a small sculpture for it. And it was, it was exciting in that like a couple women got into a bidding war over it and then ended up paying the full price to win the, the bid. And then kind of heartbreaking in that the woman who won the piece then put it in her closet and never like looked at it ever again. Okay. A, how do you know that? <laughs> And why did that happen? (laughs) So a friend of a friend happened to know her. I have a friend who works at Tara, which is a a sort of medium platform that brings attention to women in art and design. And she happened to know the person who bought the original piece and confided in her that she had never taken it out of her closet. Well, someday, <laughs> someday it's it's being it's being kept pristine. Let's mm. hope that that's what we can think of it. 
All right. Earlier, you also mentioned brand identity, the need for brand identity. Mm-hmm. How you doing on that? Do you, do you do you do good jobs with your website? Do you use social media? Like, what's are you building your brand identity? Well, is that a thing? Do you even care? I wouldn't claim to be especially adept at it. I'd say that the most powerful social media platform for me has been Instagram because rather than kind of like shouting into the void, like when you're on Twitter or Facebook, it's a lot more about the images and being able to search by hashtags and look for sort of thematic pieces and choosing which parts of your story you want to like visually tell. So Instagram is definitely my go-to social media, but I wouldn't say that by any means I'm especially good at building a brand. Oh, I- I'm horrible at it. So I have no, <laughs> no uh, person to say like, oh, yeah, it's easy. Anybody can do mm-hmm. it. No, I find it incredibly difficult. <laughs> I find it incredibly difficult because A, my I, I, probably much like you, my mm-hmm. production is not very fast. Like mm-hmm. my I feel like my pieces take a long, like a long time because they take me like mm-hmm. a month to two months, sort mm-hmm. of off and on working on them. You know, not like you, three months for a single piece. But like, I say, I, like in the old days when I was a kid, before <laughs> you were probably even born, that we, you know, like an artist would pull out a series every two to three years, mm-hmm. like, and that and that was fine. Mm-hmm. But like these days with social media and the internet and everything around it, but like we're expected to be constantly producing stuff like on a mm-hmm. weekly or even a daily basis. Not only do we have to be making amazing artwork, but we have to somehow document it, figure out the right mm-hmm. hashtags for it, whatever, you know, <laughs> d- decide whether to put it as a post or post it as a story or like, Jesus Christ, like I knew <laughs> it's way too many things for me to worry about. Yeah. I, I definitely have never wanted to post things for the sake of posting it because especially with woodworking, everything is always becomes like the same kind of yellowy brown color, which like when you look at all the pictures at once, you're just kind of like, ew, like that's, that's gross looking. It just looks so repeated and kind of mundane. So I try to only post pictures of moments or pieces that are really important to me. And I know that that isn't how Instagram's algorithm works. It works better if you post regularly. <laughs> uh, don't start me on my tirade <laughs> about the algorithm. I fucking hate the algorithm. It's the bane of my existence, the fucking algorithm. Because it keeps changing. As yeah. soon as I figure out mm-hmm. how to use the algorithm to my advantage, they change mm-hmm. it on me. Yeah, it hasn't been. I don't think it's been very well managed since Facebook bought them. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I just know that I, I can't seem to make it work to my advantage, like mm-hmm. under no, any circumstances. But all right. Um, last little thing, or actually, mm-hmm. well, two things. But one, do, you were saying that you were building a studio in your home. So, so one of the questions I always wonder about, like people who graduate from school and don't necessarily like go to apprentice or work in a, in mm-hmm. another workshop where they have like resources and stuff. What have you done? So like since leaving school, because not only did you leave school, but you left the region where your school was and sort of set mm-hmm. up somewhere new. 
were you working in some group studio? Were you working at a, a, a some other company to use their resources? Like, how are you even keeping productive? After I left Ireland, or rather while I was still in Ireland, one of the graduate students while I was an undergraduate, Jason McCloskey, contacted me and asked if I would want to work with a company I had interned for, Codor Design, to keep making these custom cabinets for them. So like hand-cut dovetails, like hand-plane sliding drawers, that sort of thing. And so for me, it was kind of like, oh, 300 days of rain to 300 days of sun, establishing myself in the mountains where it's warmer and drier were all really important. And then knowing Jason and having at least one person here. So I worked hmm, four or five years in Jason's shop. I worked at first for Codor Design. I worked a bit for his companies, which are Flitch Studios and QCO. And then I also did my personal work as well. And and you are you said you were building a studio in your your new home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sort of I'm making a shop that has been completely customized for bent lamination. So every single surface is coplanar because it's only 750 feet. Every surface is coplanar, so all like large objects can be rotated from one surface to another. The joiner is one of the longest machine beds, but very narrow, which is great for jointing laminates. Pretty like basic machinery, but I've tried to sort of customize everything to like my particular experience of woodworking. I have a tough question mm-hmm. because I'm springing it on you. <laughs> it's a random question. Uh, I've, I've recently I've begun asking people. Are there, could you name three creative people? So they could be designers, they could be artists, they could be whatever you want that you think um, more people should pay attention to. I think most people that I would name would already, are already fairly well known. But sort of my personal inspirations, I really like the architect Thomas Heatherwick. I love his philosophy of giving back to the public as much as possible with everything that he builds. I like the fashion designer Iris Van Herpen because of how uncompromising she is and how she just like nothing is ever functional. You would never like wear something casually of hers, but like it's just a complete devotion to experimenting with the materiality of things she works with, with like laser cut plastics and silks and like shaped tools and stuff like that. And yeah, I guess another famous person would be like Santiago Calatrava is a huge influence for me. I just, yeah. You're saying all these people are famous. I've never heard any of these names. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) He's another architect and does a lot of, hyperbolic and parabolic geometry in his buildings. I've only been inside a few of them, but they're just, it's sort of the feeling as when you're in a church and that it like the building comes off as like so powerful and sort of filled with space and light that it's like, it's an emotional experience just to stand inside the interior and like look at how it was built. Great. 
last question I ask for everybody is any advice for young people out there listening that want to elevate their careers? I don't know how great my answer would be because I don't think I've especially elevated my career, but I suppose that if you're considering a career, yeah, (laughs) if you're considering a career in the fine arts, like you have to get a lot of joy and a lot of energy from that to fuel you because it's never going to be a financial payoff. And because you're always sort of, it's just so easy to have like a a W-2 and W-4 and straightforward income and all that. Like, I guess another thing I would say is that there's a lot more out there in terms of careers than what is presented in art school. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny because like I just had a podcast with like a museum technician. Mm. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, there are so many tertiary industries. Like, you Mm. don't always have to be an artist work in the arts you can do so many other things it's there's lots of opportunities that i wish i knew about when i was younger at this mm-hmm. point sadly i'm too old to change that. <laughs> yeah. i did think of one more thing so i wanted to mention that for me working in wood because it's so restrictive has always been a source of inspiration and then also I sort of feel like if every decision is in the artist's hands, the overall effect of what you make can just seem a little bit too contrived and too human. And so for me, like being informed by my material has always been really important, like seeing how it bends and curves or like if I twist it in one particular direction, how does it change the entire form of the piece? So for me, I always like to take some of myself out of the decision-making when I'm designing something because I want to make something that looks a little effortless and that looks a little bit like it just kind of grew organically instead of being built by someone. Well, actually, that makes me think about like how do you get your resources? So, do you go to like Home Depot and Lowe's and buy your wood, or like have you ever thought about literally? I mean, you live in Colorado, Mm -hmm. go out to a tree farm and like choose a tree and build it. You know, like have somebody plane it and cut it down for you. Like, I mean, do you you know work with you know tree farmers or do you buy it sort of like in stores? So I mostly work with veneer, which is grade A lumber that while the wood is still completely saturated with water, it's sliced instead of cut. So there's almost like zero waste when they're producing it because they're just slicing it with a knife instead of cutting it with the curve of a blade. And all of my sources for veneer are on the East Coast because that's where I'm from. So I'll order... I'll order a veneer from the East Coast, and I'm, I mostly work with that material. Colorado is a bit, well, I, I would actually say very limited in terms of native tree species. We pretty much just have pine and aspen. And then beetle kill is all the rage, which I personally just absolutely hate the look of. And I don't harvest my own trees. I the designer I worked for, Joseph Walsh, would actually go to France 
pick out logs and then get them sawn into veneer sequentially, meaning he keeps the original order of the tree. But Colorado, the hardwood species are just so limited. There's not really a demand for locally made veneer. (laughs) All right. Well, marvelous. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. (laughs) Okay. So two people that I think should have more attention are both people that I met through RISD. The first would be one of my professors named Yuri Kobayashi. She is sort of also amazingly uncompromising in her work. Like all of her stuff is all about form and play of light. She does a lot of experimental steam bending and bent lamination. And she's really informed by her experience of being a Japanese citizen and living in the US. And then the other artist would be Vivian Chu, who was a a couple years above me while I was an undergraduate. And she apprenticed for a, a really long time for an artist named Ursula von Reidingsvard, who's a chainsaw artist and does these like massive monumental pieces that are like really kind of sublime to look at. And then Vivian took that and she has been making these really interesting self-portraits out of layers of plywood or foam and kind of deliberately skewing isn't the right word, kind of deforming the, the portraits, either kind of like visually like smearing them or having the effect of like the wood being eaten away around her face. And they're sort of all about her developing identity as a queer artist. Totally random question. Mm-hmm. I can edit this out if you don't want to talk about it. I'm a white man from America. <laughs> you mm-hmm. are of, I, I'm, and I apologize if I even phrase this wrong, but like you are of Asian descent. Like, so Yeah, my dad Asian? is Japanese. Japanese, okay. Is that any sort of a a barrier or any sort of a has it come up as any sort of a problem or a concern in the arts world for you? I think it creates a very specific projected identity, uh, particularly if people meet me in person. They they again hear that soft spokenness, and they assume that I'll be quite submissive and not very egotistical, I guess. And it's an interesting dynamic because like I've had people tell me that my work is very masculine because I think it, and I've had the opposite people tell me feminine, but I think because it is kind of creates a stark contrast between how I like physically take up space in a room versus how my furniture takes up space in a room people are often a little bit weirded out. There's a very specific personality type I tend to infuriate. It tends to be like late 30s, early 40s, white guy who to him woodworking is an extension of his masculinity. And so if I like don't take shit from this particular personality, it makes them so angry and just like develop a bitter hatred of me. Um so yeah, it's definitely been it's been a really big influence 
in my identity and how I present myself. I actually had a show, it would have been in 2019, called Making a Seat at the Table, and it was a collection of all female woodworking artists. And it was deliberately scheduled for 2019 to be 100 years after like the women's right to vote, or at least the white women's right to vote started to gain serious traction. But it was incredibly moving to be part of that show and see all of these artists. Well, first of all, like the pool of artists, I was like, oh, I shouldn't know this many people because I knew so many of their names. It was a much smaller world than I had anticipated, but also to just see how incredible their work was and to see it all in one room. They hadn't had a show like that, I think, since the 70s of all female woodworking artists. And it made me realize like how important that sense of identity is to me to kind of always be the person that people, well, if I, if I say like I walk into a woodworking shop, if I'm with a male friend, I've even had a male friend in a spinning chair, spinning around in circles, just kind of like waving, waving things around to amuse himself. And they'll still help him first before they help me. Oh yeah, there's a lot of sexism in the arts, no matter what mm-hmm. in what part of the arts you're in. But I would imagine. I mean, I'm a photographer, and I just recently had a conversation with somebody else. So, like, sexism in the photography industry is just mm. as bad. Like, everybody assumes that the man is the photographer. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong; it's getting better. But yeah. still, like, if a man and a woman both walk into a room and somebody's expecting a photographer, they assume mm-hmm. it's the man. And in the uh, same way, you're having the same kind of thing. Like, if you and a man walk into a, a woodworking room, they're going to assume that it's the man, not you. And it's – I don't understand where it comes from other than just, like, history. But, like, I don't understand why it's continued to be thought that way. Mm. Yeah, I guess just visibility. Yeah, for me, especially – in teaching, there tends to like, there's a bell curve of personality types, but on the extreme ends of the bell curve, there's the very intimidated, very quiet, like asks a lot of questions for reassurance. And most of the time it tends to be my female students. And I have to kind of like build them up and give them that confidence and teach them to like own their right to be there. And then there's the opposite end, which is the guys who have, usually they have carpentry experience and they'll be doing stuff like cutting a board while just holding it in midair in front of a chop saw and just endangering themselves and the people in the class. And they're just so loudly arrogant that one of my first goals is to just break them down completely and like crush their egos and make them realize that they're not as amazing as they are, as they think they are. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough industry for anybody who is not the tradition. I mean, you know, it's so sad. I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm part of it, I guess is the hard part mm-hmm. for me. It's like, I'm a, I am a white, male american of european Mm. descent like i'm the the system that everybody's (laughs) hates 
basically <laughs> like and, and I, I, there's nothing i can do about it that's what i was how i was born but mm-hmm. like my best bosses have always been women like mm-hmm. i love having a woman as my boss they are the best bosses i've ever had in any job i've ever had i hate working for men because it then becomes like a pissing match and an <laughs> ego thing because they always think i'm out for their jobs and all this kind of crap and i'm just like no i'm just trying to do my job really well mm-hmm. if i if i happen to do your job better than you well that's just a you know happens but like that's not my intention but like i love you know having a women be in power above me i think mm. it's magnificent and i don't understand why it's not just like to me it's it's not about like when i look at an application because like we had some some dean positions come in and like mm-hmm. they, i kept i would i would just look at the credentials like it wasn't about gender it wasn't about ethnicity mm-hmm. it wasn't about any of that stuff it was just like hey this person knows what they're doing like they, they, mm-hmm. they have this great idea they have this great credentials fabulous good person let's interview them and i don't understand where this whole like i i i know it makes me sound like i'm somehow horribly evolved but i'm sure <laughs> i'm not i'm sure i'm not at all in many ways but like in many ways, I just, I just don't. I try my best, I guess, like not to even notice these things, and mm. I'm always surprised when other people point them out or make them bigger issues than I think they need to be. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of it is sort of there's multiple layers of expectations. Like for me, a lot of times, especially when I'm working as an instructor, I'm always on guard and I'm always kind of ready to defend myself to get the amount of respect that I think I deserve and just kind of I guess more often expecting the worst of people (laughs) sorry I just made a gesture that nobody could see but like I I'm I'm always expecting the worst of people <laughs> but well I I hope for the best but plan for the worst mm. so like you know like I'm always expecting everybody to be negative and bad and and not have positive feedback and I'm always pleasant and therefore I'm hopefully I'm always pleasantly surprised when they do give good feedback or positive results or whatever but like mm-hmm. I, I I was the troublemaker in school I was the kid that almost got I almost got kicked out of high school for God's sake oh, wow. <laughs> because I was such a troublemaker and I mean so like I'm all I, I, you know, like even to this day, I can't walk by a police officer without getting concerned <laughs> that I've done something illegal. That for some reason they're suddenly realized that I've done something illegal like decades ago. Mm-hmm. So like I'm always concerned about that kind of stuff, but like I don't understand where that comes into like ethnicity or gender or any of these kinds of things. Like I, I guess I just hope that we evolved more faster, and I guess we haven't. I do think that like there's always overwhelmingly like a positive trend forward. Like people who were really depressed about the 2016 election and like all four years that happened after that, like I feel like you're, they weren't remembering that like eugenics was incredibly popular in the U S and like the, 20s and 30s and like people were being like unwittingly sterilized and 
Like so many Japanese woodworkers that I admired came out of the internment camps that the U.S. created during World War II, and they didn't create any internment camps for the Germans. Oh, we, we could go all the way back to the Native American <laughs> reservations and how we've treated them as well. My God, like America has just constantly been, you know, crushing anybody mm -hmm. who's not white, European descent, whatever, you know, in the long past, they hit male as well. Like, but but mm -hmm. I guess I just sort of hope that we can do better. Yeah. And I think that like we are always doing better. Like it's, it's always kind of the best time to be alive. The present is always the best time to be alive because it's always so much more tolerant than the past was. And you have so many more opportunities than you would have in the past. Yeah, no, my previous teaching position was I was in a Muslim country in the United mm -hmm. Arab Emirates teaching mm -hmm. Muslim women at the college mm -hmm. level how to produce art. I mean, 20 years ago, that would never have been an opportunity <laughs> for those women, like mm -hmm. at all. And so, I mean, there is progress, but I'm just always surprised, I guess, sadly surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The show that I was in, The Making a Seat at the Table, they were simultaneously writing a book. Their, their names were Laura Mays and Deirdre Weiser. And they had kind of overwhelmingly found that women in woodworking and fine arts would almost always be in an educational job to supplement their income. And it was far more common for men to kind of strike out and take the leap and establish their own company, which I thought was really interesting. Are you going to make your own company? I don't know. I mean, technically I have my own company. I have my own LLC. Great. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I would ever necessarily be able to be like financially successful, just dependent on the art that I make because I work so slowly and very inefficiently. But you talked about how you're going to outsource and you're going to make mm. some affordable versions of your stuff. So like there, you have the plans. Yeah, that is what I would like to, to move forward with. Yeah. Okay. But okay. This is my thing. So you're, you're a talented designer. You make beautiful things. However, you're, you can't do it cost effectively or make mm -hmm. it affordable for the general thing. What I find is difficult is that there are no, there are, I'm not going to say there are no opportunities because I'm sure I'll get slammed saying like, oh, <laughs> but like there's very limited opportunities <laughs> to get help, to be able to sort of mm. do that, that transition. Cause I mean, basically what you need is you need uh, like a CEO or a, or some, mm -hmm. some investment capital or so, you know, some business person to basically mm -hmm. come in and say, okay, you have great skills. You have great talent. This is the way to make it this way, this way, this way. And this is how much mm -hmm. money it's going to cost to do it. And here are the financial backers who will help you create this mm -hmm. thing. And art school does not teach you any of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I took a business class at one point. And it was really strange because the woman running the class was primarily gearing the class towards a service-based business. So she was talking about how you could build up multiple tiers of your business and the highest tier would always be one-on-one -on -one time. 
because that's the most valuable service that you can offer with someone is your full attention. And the lowest tier of service would be like a class of say like 15 where you're teaching people or you're running like a yoga or meditation thing. And I was like, but what about physical products? And she was like, uh, yeah, like you can have like multiple tiers of products, stuff that you've outsourced more, stuff that you've built personally. And then she was emphasizing how to attract clients, you have to present your business as a necessity in their lives because people will always find money to spend on necessities and not on luxuries. And I was like, but what about luxury physical products? That's what I make. And she was kind of like, she never really gave me a, a satisfying answer about that. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I'm in academia, so are you. So mm-hmm. I am I've never taken a quote unquote business course mm-hmm. in academia, or I've never even known anybody who teaches a business course that is actually helpful for the arts. <laughs> yeah. Right now I'm taking a tax boot camp for the arts. <laughs> okay, fine. Taxes, I totally get. That's fine. But mm-hmm. I mean I mean like a business model, like how mm. to run a business that is an artistic business, whatever that you know, for whether it's you know designing furniture or being a painter or whatever it is. Like mm-hmm. I've never come across an actual beneficial course because they all just give these vague like oh you need to use instagram more or mm. be sure to put this on your website for search engine optimization none of that is fucking useful mm-hmm. okay like i mean i want somebody to like i want the ceo of like amazon to come and tell us how to do it i want jeff coons to come and tell me how to do that shit because like mm-hmm. he pulls it off well don't get me wrong don't love his work <laughs> love his business model mm. yeah he's very successful as a a brand. Absolutely. Yeah. Not great work, but great business. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very disheartened that like there are not a lot of people that offer that ability to sort of transcend the creative nature of being an, uh, a creative person in whatever field mm-hmm. or industry you're in into a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say almost everybody I know who I would consider to be really successful in art either had a partner who was equally invested in the business and they could build each other up and have each other as resources or they kind of become almost completely divorced from the actual creative process and they're just in like a more managerial position where because they're the only one who cares enough to keep everything going. Yeah, n- neither of those finding a partner would be ideal, but it it's really really difficult. I wouldn't even know where to start to look. Mm-hmm. Sad. <laughs> yeah.